When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Midpoint, the podcast which on hearing that the Economic and Social Research Council found that middle-aged is anything between the age of 37 and 58, asked the question... What does that mean? Are we supposed to have it all sorted by now? Is this our golden age or is it just another part of the journey? My guest today has written about every age of womanhood, from her best-selling 2012 cracker, How to Be a Woman, to How to Build a Girl, and of course, her most recent book, which has just hit the shops, More Than a Woman. At 45 years old, she's experiencing the midlife herself in all its glory. And as she always does, she's documented it in her fast-paced, comedic, intensely personal and heartwarming style. She's an award-winning columnist for The Times. She's produced a TV series, Raised by Wolves, loosely based on her younger life. And she's been married for 25 years to Pete and is a mother, more importantly than anything, to two teenage daughters. She's also a wannabe hag. She is Katlyn Moran. This episode is brought to you by Solgar, who've been making carefully crafted vitamins and nutritional supplements since 1947. I like to think I've got a fairly healthy diet, but every now and again we need to top something up. And these vitamins are quite literally the gold standard. They've got a gold lid, a brown glass bottle, very chic, and with 300 in the range, there is literally something for everyone. Catelyn, I am sat in um, a kind of, it's like a glass um, igloo in yes. your garden. Um, it's exactly how I wanted it to be. If I'd imagined where we would be having this chat, and it's so lovely. And thank you so much for having me round. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. As a writer, you're just generally hermit on your own, um, occasionally opening a tin of sardines and eating them with your hands before going back to write. So it's actually nice to be civilised, dressed and talking to a human being. <laughs> this podcast is called Midpoint because it kind of, I was sparked by this revelation one day when I walked past a mirror and was kind of shocked because inside I was still 28. Not that I want to be 28 forever, but I, I had all this kind of, you know, idea of myself and then realised I am actually ageing and um, and physically and everything. And then you go and write the book, um, More Than a Woman, which is incredible timing for this. So thank you for that. <laughs> My and absolute pleasure. Thank you for that. And there's so many things in that that I could talk to you about. But I also want to kind of get into, you've written about almost every stage of being a woman from how to be a girl onwards. Have you found this period of your life more challenging than you anticipated? Oh, hugely. I mean, when I wrote, so the first chapter of More Than a Woman starts with me now at 45 going to visit me at 35 when I just finished How to Be a Woman and just basically laughing at her because I was so convinced when I finished writing that book that the hard bit of being a woman was done. Like, obviously, that's going to be the hardest bit, the bit where, you know, you grow your bazooms and you start bleeding and you're working out your sexuality and, like, you know, and it covers, like, you know, having the whole children bobsled out of my uh, of my nunas. And I was like, well, that's got to be the hardest bit. It's all going to be easy from now on. And I thought that middle age was the bit where finally you had an elegant life and you spent it just having long lunches with gal pals, maybe buy a pair of white linen trousers and just enjoy your fabulous time. And, of course, you get to middle age and you're like... <laughs> 
that's not what middle age is at all. Well, middle age is, is the point where you realise that when you were younger, you had the luxury of your problems being your problems. It's stuff that you are screwing up in your life. When you get to middle age, your problems are other people's problems. You know, your parents are getting older, you have to care for them. You have teenagers, which I'm sorry to tell anybody who's got younger children is the most difficult part of parenting, even though that would seem impossible to you right now. Um, your friends start divorcing. And if you're a reasonably sorted middle-aged woman, you become some kind of fifth emergency service. You're the one that people call, people move into your house, you know, you're travelling up and caring for people and you are holding the threads of society together for no pay uh, <laughs> whilst going through <laughs> an aging <laughs> process yourself. Are you... Um are you enjoying, are you learning to embrace this period? Well, I've always been a capable person. I was the eldest of eight kids and like I had my kids really early and I like kind of being a bit of a leader and kind of having plans and making things better. So I was I was always prepared for the the hard work of it. And once I'd learned a couple of big lessons, I was kind of, I'm, I, I really, I've always enjoyed getting older and older and older. But the thing that vexed me is it was very difficult to talk about who I was and what I was doing because in popular culture, we don't have movies about keeping a marriage together for 25 years. Mm. We don't make TV shows about how you raise children and look after them. We don't even have uplifting disco songs about making the best ever household roster, even though you've got a really bad back. So <laughs> when I sort of talked about myself as a middle-aged woman, I was aware that in most people's heads, they were just thinking that you were some kind of silent drudge doing boring stuff in the house and that you'd kind of disappeared from popular culture. And, uh, and so then I started looking in history and sort of like, you know, trying to work out because the three phases usually in a woman's life are maid, the virgin, then the mother, and then you go crone. A crone, witch, hag. And like those, or you're dead. Yeah, exactly. So these are, hag is preferable to dead, but sometimes <laughs> maybe not because the way that people talk about these things is like, you know, it, it, you know, sort of like that those are bad things. But if you actually research the lives of hags and crones and witches, they live in houses in the forest. They're intolerant of stupid people. Uh, they stomp around in their cloaks with their staffs. They tend their garden. They grow their herbs. They make their potions. They do wild rituals in the woods, jumping into lakes and cackling with their fellow crones and hags. And, and people just leave them alone and they are respected. And I was like... I want a hag life. I am a hag now. That is my hag phase. I'm garden friends, kind of wisdom intolerance. I want to sell and reclaim the word hag, basically. I tried to reclaim the word feminist. The hags don't ago. always have um, teenagers and husbands living with them, though. No. They? So, and you, as you said then, I've got a long marriage, and which every single marriage, and I can't imagine yours is any different, has its challenges along the way and keeping it together. Oh, yeah. And, and that, you know, and that in itself, almost you get to kind of, you know, I'm coming up to 20 years marriage. That's, you know, that's a big achievement, isn't it? Oh, totally. With all those other pressures that are coming. And you, like me, have got divorced parents as yes. well. Yes, but how many templates do you have for keeping a marriage together? Like, there's nothing to template on. You can't, there's no advices for doing these things. Like, you just can't fit that kind of span into a movie. So things like, you know, trying to keep your sex life going or, you know, dividing the labour or raising your children... There's just nothing in popular culture. There isn't a single example that you can rest on and go, oh, I could do it this way or do it that way. You're not supposed to talk about your middle age. You're just supposed to close the door and crack on with it. And I just wanted to open the door and just show how in every household there are adventures and quests and challenges and joys. The equal of any huge Hollywood biopic, like, or, you know, a ring quest to Mordor, throwing the ring in the crack of doom. But it's happening in your house and it's happening with middle-aged women and I just wanted to present them as the heroes they are. And that was also one of my motivations in doing this in terms of for men as well as as women but it was obviously I was looking at it from my own perspective at the start that I didn't like the idea that women stopped dreaming stopped planning stopped the idea you know that they could do something different they might change course dramatically when their kids leave home and this empty nest happens that they feel then they just have to keep cleaning the nest you know 
to be able to go right i've got another 40 years totally of being active well so. we don't talk about third acts do we it is just kind of like sort of like you have all of the movies are you know about finding love like kind of like sorting out who you are in your youngest and then still the stories stop and hang on is that going to be no that's it, your lovely sure. your lovely um lady there who's uh, cleaning she's just waving now yes. is um she's she's known she she knows you so well she just went like that no it's fine oh bless her cool okay. yeah it's absolutely fine she's just uh, hoovering away let's all pretend and that i'm doing the hoovering while i'm talking there's, to you no, in order there's, to... right, there's nothing wrong with having somebody help you around the house because everything you've just said there you know i'm 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 always put my hands up yes of course i've got help of course i've got people to help me totally i wrote a column about this when lockdown happened because it became a really controversial thing about whether or not you had a cleaner and mm-hmm. I I used to be a cleaner when I was a teenage girl. So Me like, too. Kind of, you know, it's a, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you know how to be a good employer and yeah. like kind of, but you know, if you have careers like ours and sort of people I called go, myself a nanny, by the way, but I was a cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> Multitasking. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it's like, well, how do you, how could we possibly have the careers that we've got and do the work the hours that we do without yeah. someone helping? Like kind of like, it's almost insulting that they My mum used to time. call our um, nannies or cleaners she called them her mother's helps yes. um because she, they would they would be like one night doing tea for us but the next day they'd be cleaning bathrooms or the next day you know whatever she needed the help with so she could keep working and yes. that was uh, unashamedly so you know and, and but it has always been this like oh oh yes i've got somebody that helps me and, and i'm oh, I, don't be guilty. Because it's always asked to women. There's no such thing as a father's help. No, no one ever, like the amount of times that I've seen women sort of shamed on social media for having a cleaner, it's like I've never seen a single man ever have it thrown in his Can face you imagine that he's got that? a cleaner. No, it's like Gary Lineker's <laughs> got a cleaner. Oh, it would just never happen. So the the midlife woman um, has historically not really had a face, has she? She's no. not had, and we, we celebrate kind of people like Helen Mirren mm. who can keep looking cracking at 70, you know, and it's always a visual thing as well, isn't it? It's, a, it's on the aesthetic almost that you kind of have this, oh, she looks wonderful for 68. Yes. But there's no sense of like achievement being celebrated into no totally life. well yeah and, exactly. and that's only a very recent thing like when J-Lo um, and Shakira did the Super Bowl recently everyone was like wow you can look this good at 50 and it's like well you can and it's great you know, it's great with the expanding the lexicon and all these options for women as they get older but like to look like that is a full time job mm. like kind of like I don't want everybody to suddenly think well it's either turning into a crone or a hag or being J-Lo like yeah. I mean, you need to find a middle ground there. and and that shouldn't be just the the only achievement that you have yes. <laughs> that's my point that it's not about just just preserving yourself and just looking, you know, good. Well, th- to, all too often the problem with being a woman is that you are judged and valued for what what you're being, kind of how you how you are rather than what you do. So it's just kind of like you know. I remember having a very strong belief that when I was younger, that if I was beautiful and graceful and slim, then that would be all the work I would need to do because then I would be so beautiful that I would be rewarded. That would be how you would get husbands and jobs and how you would get friends and stuff because that's sort of very much the image that you see in movies. Like, mm-hmm. and if whenever a girl is struggling, there's always a point a mid point where she has the makeover and suddenly becomes beautiful and then that's when her life improves mm-hmm. it's it's never that she does something unless it's a musical which is why I'm, I'm absolutely adamant that fe- uh, musicals are the most feminist uh, movie genre because they're always about a girl who's a bit odd and a bit quirky mm-hmm. and how she gets through her problems in life is that she's amazing at dancing and singing she <laughs> does something and that's how she changes her life whereas if you're in like the godfather then the only way that you have any power as a woman is by looking really beautiful and mysterious at the top of the stairs in a sort of white <laughs> silk bike cascan you never get to say anything and James Bond, yeah. another example. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You're very good at like jumping in front of a bullet that's meant for James Bond. Like, that's not really a skill I want to learn. Like, I'm happy to let him die. Although Monica Bellucci obviously was in the last film, wasn't she? Which was um, progress. Yes. The, um, <laughs> the, 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 the kind of the way your career has gone from telling your story about how to be in how to be a girl and moving through the ages of life um, is 
interesting in, to me because I've always I've followed those and they've resonated as they have with all my friends. And um, one of the things that has become clear to me in midlife is that what I thought when I was younger was going to be the kind of full stop. And then after that, this, this you know, that everything would be problem free. Your real life would yeah, start. It's completely life. not like, for me, the two things were, I really didn't want my period because I was a gymnast, right? So I, that's going to be the end of that. And I was going to, of course it wasn't, it happened. And the other one was having sex. Like when I first lose my virginity, after that, everything will be fine. You're growing up and that's They were it. the two big worries of my whole kind of like, you know, my adolescence. And then I realised there was something else. And then there's something else. And then there's another thing. And then, oh, I've got to get my degree and I've got to do this and I've got to... And then the moment you go, oh, do you know what? Actually, life isn't just a series of things to be ticked off. It's a constant and we're always moving. You never get there. Whatever you think the there is in your head, you're not. You're constantly on the run. And I totally hear you about that whole thing about, you know, getting your period, having sex. And then for me, it was like being able to go to the pub. And it was like, that's how you'll be a grown up. Like, kind of, you will start drinking, possibly you'll start smoking, you'll have sex and then you're done. And it's interesting because in our culture, we don't have any kind of rights a passage where you're officially marked as an adult normally in every other culture the adults decide when the teenager is an adult and they're inducted in an adult ceremony into the adult world we don't have that in the western world you are inducted into the adult world by your peers and it's usually by having sex with them or starting to drink with them or taking drugs with them and that's a really destructive way of entering into adulthood that kind of um so i find that very interesting like when in my spare time i think maybe we do need new rituals and ceremonies in the western world like kind of that'd be quite interesting to be able to for the adults to be able to take the young ones at a suitable point to go you are now an adult i will now tell you my wisdom here are some things you will learn we will now do a dance around a fire and you'll have a magic stick and this will be useful for you but it is quite satisfying isn't it when you get to a position of whatever age that is it may be in your 30s maybe before you go oh right okay i actually this is this is a not a thing that I thought. I, I am actually going to have to keep doing all this stuff. There are going to keep being problems and situations to solve for people. And I just have to live day to day and live a bit more in the moment, which is in a way what happened in lockdown, wasn't it? Yes. That we started to live in the moment. And and that was quite a kind of cathartic experience. And I think if you can, if you can impart any wisdom to younger people, it's almost saying that to them, isn't it? That it's not, it's not, a, it's not all over yes. when you have your first shag or you have your first drink. It's, it's just, it's just an, a start of another journey. Yeah, 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 exactly. You, and that's one of the reasons why I like writing these books episodically. I think I'll do them every 10 years because you don't, again, see that many stories about how you just carry on. Like so many books and like novels and stuff are just kind of like, it's a tiny sh- snapshot in someone's life where something decisive happened, they worked out a thing and then th- the problem was solved. Like, that's generally the sort of narrative structure of most books. And to show something where you're just telling this story that unstretches over time and you see all the ways that you change, all the mistakes that you make and just to go, it is a constant state of evolution. I think it's so programmed into us to think that you get to a certain point, you have your makeover, you find your boy and then you're done. And like, and that's so destructive, particularly if you don't find your boy, you know, particularly if you don't ever have your makeover, it's like, well, when would my life start then? How do I even know I'm alive? Um, which is why I always like writing about, you know, having the choice to have, to not have children as well. Both my sisters, well, two of my many sisters were very obdurate from a very early age that they didn't want to have kids. And I think it's really important for women to not think that has to be yeah, part of their narrative. because that is also another one of those markers, isn't it, for people that if they don't have children or if they have children that is then another kind of oh good right I've done my thing now because also that historically we're talking about middle age historically women did die didn't they quite yeah. often you know they were menopausal and then they more well, they were sent off to the, the funny farm yeah um, because they they were having some kind of mental some kind of menopausal change. kind of yeah. moment of because I've realized I've started being perimenopausal and it's really interesting it's not what I thought it would be and it, it basically made me realize that I I took some amount of drugs when I was younger because it was the 90s and you had to uh, there was a contract you had to sign in 1995 and that was it <laughs> 
And um, I found that, like, as you feel the estrogen and testosterone leaving your body, it's like having a come down from having taken ecstasy. Like, you feel a thing leave you. And estrogen is the thing that makes you womanly. It makes you more caring and forgiving and more chilled and relaxed and loving. And as you feel that go out your body, you know, for me at least and for many people that I know, you start to feel your anger like a proper anger it's always been in you but it's always been sort of counteracted by the estrogen and suddenly you just often have this feeling of having been really cheated you're like all these sort of womanly caring things i did like you know looking after everybody and making the house lovely and doing all this cooking and making sure everything was a well-balanced meal like no one was keeping score no one cares like i'm not going to get a certificate for that that was a huge part of my life and when i was doing those things my male contemporaries who weren't doing that kind of thing have gone so much further ahead in their careers they've all got isas and saving accounts and yachts they're tootling around having a fine old time and i'm suddenly now finally only in the game properly in my career and i'm 45 and they've overtaken me and you feel this rage and that's what menopause is going have i just made a fool of myself is all the stuff that I did being a woman for the last 30 years, it doesn't mean anything. Was I tricked into this? So I've, I'm in a kind of hag group of furious perimenopausal women at the moment. I think when you come through that, though, <laughs> and I don't, I, you know, I don't know, what, have you had actual blood tests and stuff? Have oh, yeah. Been, yeah, I had nothing. I was like, no no testosterone, no estrogen, no vitamin D, which apparently nearly every woman in the Western world is and you deficient need that now of yes. all times. It's really bigly, uh, bigly. bigly. It's really big. It is bigly. Uh, there's a really big link to coronavirus, obviously, with vitamin D, isn't Usually, there? Usually, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it and it really suppresses your mood. Like, apparently, when I was talking to my doctor, they were saying that nearly everyone in the Western world will be massively deficient in vitamin D because we all use SPF now mm. and we're usually inside. And you need to have 20 minutes in full sun, your arms, every day, minimum, in order to build up your vitamin D levels. Unless you're taking Unless you're taking supplements, yeah. So just everybody, if you feel a bit weary and depressed or angry, do go and get your vitamin D levels checked. Like my doctor was like, everybody should get it checked. It's a huge thing. Yeah, I take vitamin D um, because I, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I don't go out enough. I mean, we just don't get the sun enough, do we, to go yeah. out enough? So and then we cover up and and we were all made of scared of skin cancer 20 years ago, so it's yeah. just SPF everywhere. But yeah, you need a little bit of sun every day. Otherwise, you'll be bigly affected. You will be hugely um. affected. <laughs> And parenting in this period of life is is something that you touched on in More Than a Woman. You touch on in the most um, heartbreaking way with what you went through with your daughter and her eating disorder. And I don't want to go kind of right down that that very, very um, sad period, I imagine, as as a mum to to see that going on with your daughter. But it was it was your kind of conclusion almost or trying to come to some conclusion of how this could happen in this loving family that was really interesting yeah you have almost like a kind of like a superstitious belief that if you're a loving happy communicative family that it couldn't happen to you and like kind of I was so sure it would never happen to us so when it was clear she started to get ill my response to that was very non-useful to her this is why I wanted to write about it she's now totally fully recovered which is amazing and she told me to write about it because there were mistakes that I made even as you know I think I am a very good parent but there were a couple of big mistakes that I made so The first one is that when you have someone who has a mental illness, parenting doesn't work. Everything you do as a parent to improve a situation does not work. So you can't you can't encourage them with incentives or bribes because they are in negation of life. They will not accept it. You can't punish them. They're punishing themselves. You can't reason them out of it. We'd sit down and give these TED talks at three in the morning, go nutrition. And this is why you feel so bad and you must eat. You don't want to hear that when you're ill. Then we tried to jolly her out of it, which was just, you know, we turned into sort of light entertainment. As soon as she'd come through the door, it was all jazz hands and let's play buckaroo and I've bought you some pet rats. And none of that works. And the thing that I, the biggest fault that I had as a parent is I was scared of sadness. I had to do my family when I was growing up. We didn't do sadness. You just jollied your way out of it. And if you're dealing with someone with a mental illness, that's the worst thing you can do because you're basically saying, 
I'm scared of sadness. We can't talk about this. You're going to have to pretend to be happy in front of me. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write about it in the book to tell people like kind of you've got to do the most important thing when you're with someone who's going through a bad time. is You've got to say what you see. You have to go, I can see you are sad. Mm. I can see you are depressed. I am not scared of that. I am going to stay with you. We're going to make this better together. And astonishingly, that sentence did not occur to me until she was two years into her illness. And once I finally said that sentence, the transformation was incredible. And she'd finally started getting the help that she needed as well. And she's now totally better, which is extraordinary because the stats are with an eating disorder. It is the uh, illness with the highest uh, mortality rate, the psychiatric illness with the highest mortality rate. The stats are roughly 30, 30, 30. 30% will recover entirely. 30% will recover partially. They might be orthorexic yeah. and picky around their food. And 30% will continue to be seriously ill or will die. And that's the doom talk that you're given at the beginning of the illness. And you're also told that the average course of an illness is between five and seven years, which is such an incomprehensibly mm. long amount of time. She was 11 when she was diagnosed. And it was like... Well, that's all your teenage years up in flames. There's mm. no parties, no prom, no exams, no friends. We're just going to be in these hospitals and in this house mm. trying to make you better. Um, so that was why I, I wanted to write about it, because her generation doesn't have this feeling of shame about mental illness. They talk about mm. it. It's our generation that was brought up in a time when you did not talk about mental illness. And if we're the parents that are trying to make them better and we... I feel like we've got to keep it secret and we can't talk about it. We talk about it if our kids broke their leg or if mm -hmm. they had leukaemia. But we ran an extract from the book in the Times a couple of weeks ago and I was staggered by the amount of people that I knew and people I knew of who were DMing me and emailing me going, yeah, my daughter, my son has this. We haven't told anyone. We don't know what to do. Mm. We're so ashamed. What have we done wrong? Mm. Mm. And that's, you know, if you can do anything as a writer, you want to be useful. And if you can tell this story with, with her permission and uh, start a conversation about mm. how you can be useful as a parent, which is what you want to do, you want the information, then mm. that is what I wanted to do. And you did it beautifully, as as always. And, and it kind of came as well in the way... It came in the book was so shocking and um, and really um, gripping and you know I'm I've read other accounts before of the way families have dealt with it but you did it in such a compassionate and Thank and you. beautiful way and so happy that the outcome has been so good for you but the interesting thing as well when you started to try and analyze okay how could this happen you know and obviously there's the obvious stuff like social media and pressures to conform and all of that one of the things that I found really interesting was the kind of conversations you'd have as a family yes. talking about the state of the world and, you know, we're all doomed and unemployment's going to grow. And, and right now it's obviously coronavirus that's the, the dominant black cloud hanging over. And actually your realisation that those conversations sometimes are too big for kids to handle. Oh, totally. Like kind of, you know, whatever your political persuasion, like, you know, whatever your household is like, I think everybody thinks this is a fairly unhopeful age. Like, you know, environmental stuff, political, economic. And you have these conversations around the table with your friends and then you suddenly realise there's like a little pair of eyes in the corner looking really scared. And then what we do, thinking that we're going to make it better as adults, is we go, but don't worry, because your generation's amazing. Like you've got Greta Thunberg, you've got Emma Gonzalez, you know how to properly use the internet, you know how to like get sort of campaigns together. You kids are going to be amazing. You're going to save the world, so don't worry. And we think that's a compliment and that we're making them feel better but of course it isn't because the kids huge are just, pressure. The kids are just hearing mum save mummy and daddy. Like yeah. we don't know what to do. Yeah. And the other thing we do often is we go, well look, in the end it doesn't matter like how you do at school or what you look like or any of these things. Mummy and daddy just want you to be happy. Again, thinking that that's a really kind thing to say, but a kid's just hearing, okay, so I have to be happy for you. Mm. If you saw mm. me being sad or worried or anxious, mm, I failed you. Yeah. <laughs> that's on my to-do list now. And so these are the parenting things that I'd not read any of these things anywhere else and I was like so often when we think we're being kind 
or useful or empowering mm. our children. We, we actually aren't. Mm. And it is such an anxious age at the moment. The stats are that one in four teenage girls will either become depressed, anxious, self-harm or develop an eating disorder. And that is, you know, this is a cortisol age. Mm. You know, while children are so anxious and we have to find a way to make them less anxious and make them feel that mummy and daddy are in charge of this and we are mm-hmm. going to do something about it and we're not leaving it to the next generation. Well, it's the whole, which is a very old-fashioned concept about boundaries, isn't it? Yeah. That, you know, actually kids need to push against something and, you know, they do need to sometimes rebel and disagree and, you know, but I think there's also this idea that the perfect house is one that everybody's in agreement and everybody has the same views and they're all actually, that's completely unreal no, so, no no and that's 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 someone you know in a household where everyone's in agreement at least one person isn't saying what they really think yeah. and like that's not a healthy environment to be in like kind of you know you need to enjoy the debates and not be threatened by them I absolutely believed that the teenage years would be the easy bit like you just think you know I'm, I'm not having to be with them in the toilet they know where the <laughs> grill pan is like kind of like they can get themselves of course it's got to be easier mm. and I had a friend at the times who when her children reached teenage years she resigned from her desk job Mm. at the times and I was like what why because I had very little kids and she was like no this is where they really need you like this Mm. is where I had a friend exactly the same I was pregnant even and she was her 13 and 14 year old and she was leaving her job and she said I've worked all the way through from them being like six weeks old said they really need me now well it's a specialist job being a parent in the teenagers you can when they're younger they just need someone to stop them falling down the stairs and hug them it's keeping them alive yes totally but in the teenagers it is you become like a professional psychiatrist and guide to the adult life and teenagers work in a very specific way that they will feel sad or bad about something for ages and then there's a two minute window in like maybe a month where they'll be ready to talk to you about it and if you and if you're not, it's like those plants that grow in the in the Amazon. It's like ovulation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when the egg comes out, you've got to go, man. Yeah. And that's it. And if you're not there for that conversation, if you're not like driving them somewhere mm. or just sitting, in, you know, just slumped around watching telly together, if you're not there when they want to turn to you and talk to you, you can miss that window for months. Mm. Um, and I didn't realise how just finely balanced and finely tuned it was. And you just have to be around. And that's 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 a big old blow when you sort of get to your middle age and you thought it was going to get easier and it's not it's like you really have to turn up and put the hours in when they're a teenager but like, yeah, I, I think putting the hours in with kids full stop is, is hugely rewarding later yeah. on isn't it and that your relationship then going forwards you know you will you will forever be close because you've gone through something so tough as a team haven't you oh god well i have to say like you know sort of i've chronicled Sorry to use a sporting no no absolutely no sport away old friend i won't understand any of them like kicky ball good but yes um but yeah now i mean sort of like you know i've written about sort of these these really difficult years in the book and then sort of the, the book has a happy ending but like at this point now my oldest is 19 and the youngest is 17 and this is an absolutely blissful age like it feels like they're sort of over their big sort of developmental humps and we, it, they are so funny and so clever and so kind and just I just this bit's a pleasure now this mm. this almost feels like the bit that I thought I would get where it's like oh, this is nice mm. like I'm really enjoying this bit now but then of course I'm having to prepare myself for the fact that they'll move out I'm just kind of like well you are allowed to move out but it'll have to be within a five minute walk of the house so kind of, <laughs> you will have to come back for breakfast this is every quite day. a long garden I'm sure we could get some planning permission to extend that shed they can have and, a shed um, each in the bottom of the garden an igloo, yeah. an igloo each they were quite firm about the fact they wanted to move quite far away apparently South London the thing now like they, they kept going Peckham's really cool I'm from the 90s I was like Peckham isn't cool they were going no it's like Manhattan down there apparently, it's amazing apparently it is it I is know, right? really cool um, one of the other things that really resonates with this period of life that you said which made me laugh so much was the week your wardrobe kind of turned on you yes and, um, and the idea that suddenly because it's it is so strange that you, we are parents I don't know about your mum but I look back to what my mum was wearing at my age and she was always quite savvy in fashion but she looked a bit like a cross between Crystal Carrington and kind of Sue Ellen you know wow. she, because she was starting a 
business because she got her kids reared and she was starting a business. So then she had to power dress, you know, which involved a lot of heels, cool. a lot of tight kind of, you know, shoulder pads and things like that. It looks so, like, I look back at pictures now, it looks so much effort, you know? It just looks like so much time was spent. But the other way, of course, is to be comfy, which yes. is the other middle age kind of thing. So what was it about your wardrobe that suddenly felt alien? Well, because every woman has a to-do list. Like, and if you've got to have your to-do list, you've got to get it out of here, you've got to get it down. And, like, there are sort of long existential to-do lists and then more specific things, like replace carpet in front room. And one of the <laughs> things on your to-do list as a younger woman is you have to get the perfect capsule wardrobe. Like, all the magazines tell us this. So, you know, you've got to have something that'll take you day to night. You know, you've got I have some 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 relaxed resort where like kind of ta 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 and um, and you do that and you get to sort of like you know you get to your late 30s and you're like I have nailed this I've got two good cashmere jumpers I've got some shorts that don't camel toe me I've got three nice dresses I am good and then at some point in your 40s you open your wardrobe and suddenly everything overnight has just gone shit it's just turned into some kind of bad narnia all your clothes when you put them on either make you look too slutty not slutty enough they're clinging to you like a kind of angry child and won't let go of your legs and yet you you don't feel your body's Change. It's the thing. I, I'm not. I haven't changed. I. What, why, why do you not fit me in the same way? Literally, you're shouting at your clothes, going like, "Is it water retention? Okay. Well, in three days it'll be gone. So hang on in there, guys. And then three days later, you put it on, and it's still being evil on you, and it becomes uniquely dispiriting. So I gave it like nearly a year, and like kind of known it was good, and I was like. I'm just going to have to set fire to all the clothes I've got and start again. Clearly, <laughs> you just need to get a second capsule wardrobe in your middle age. It doesn't work. So I'm now experimenting with wide-legged trousers, uh, which I do enjoy. But when it's windy, they kind of, you know, you do get blown backwards down the street. They, are, they do have a kind of sail-like element. Now, in every episode, an expert comes on. And so I thought in light of what you said, Catelyn, about your wardrobe rejecting you, that we should bring in super stylist Charlotte Green, who also happens to be a very, very good friend of mine. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Gavs. How are you? Very good. Very good indeed. Now, I, no challenge phases you. I know that. But do you, do you understand kind of what Catelyn means when she says that her wardrobe rejected her? She, you know, she's just the, kind of couldn't wear anything in it suddenly one week. Yeah, I do get that. I think we get to a certain age and we think there's a new set of rules that we have to follow. But I think now, especially with lockdown, I think people are less judging. And I think we really have to kind of stick to the essence of what we're about. We don't have to kind of suddenly put a shift dress on and cut our hair short. I think we still can be fashionable and our bodies may change, but we can accommodate that. And I think we just, I, I think it's very important that we're kind of comfortable in what we're wearing when we you know, go out that front door. And it's interesting you say hair there, because that used to be a thing, didn't it? That when women hit a certain age, that they felt they had to have short hair. And and you see some super, super trendy, on-trend, you know, very stylish, chic women of in their 60s with long hair. I couldn't agree more. And the colour of hair, you know, people are letting their hair go grey. Um, they look wonderful. They maintain it. So I, I think the rules have gone out the window. And I still think, for instance, denim, you know, you can wear that as ages. You can wear it any age. You may wear it in a different way. But I think, you know, a white shirt, a, a jean um, and whatever shoe, you know, you're going to look stylish. You're going to look cool, um, whatever age you are. What about, like, I, you know, we've got, teenage daughters all three of us and I know sometimes my you know my daughter will come in Lois will come in and, and nick stuff from mine and there are things she has that I could feasibly wear but how do you stop kind of looking like you're trying to look like a 15 year old girl because it's so it fashion kind of seems to just cross over so much more than say when we were the age that our daughters are 
Oh, totally. I, I finally had a moment the other day when um, my daughter and I were going out the door and I looked down and we had the same tracksuit bottoms on and I had this moment of fear of mutton dressed as lamb and then I realised we were wearing it in a totally different way. I had a flat, a polo neck on and she had a rather crop puffer and a chunky trainer. But I realised we could both go out in the same tracksuit and it was acceptable and I still felt myself and she felt herself. So I, I kind of got over that really. In terms of fashion, what would you say the three three key things to remember are? I'm quite I'm quite strict. I'm quite calculated in the way I dress. I want to not have to think about it too much. So I follow kind of three points. I edit. I edit religiously. Um, I think you really need to make that wardrobe work for you. When you say edit, so are you quite um, strict about how, how long is an item of clothing allowed to sit then before it goes? I'm about a year, actually, because sometimes a certain event might not, you know, might not get an yeah. outing. Especially but, expensive dresses and things. Yeah, so, I'm, I'm, you know, they, they can stay in the wardrobe a bit longer. But I'm, every six months I go through and think, have I worn it? Do I need to rework that? Can I rework it? Can I try that with something? Out? You know, sometimes I have a good old dressing up afternoon just to <laughs> challenge myself to see, does that go with that? Is that appropriate? Can we do that on Instagram Live at some point? Anyway, that's... A- yes, <laughs> we can at another time. Another time. Not me getting undressed um, <laughs> sorry. um anyway so edit edit is key you need to you need to make that wardrobe work for you because it saves time it's just easy everyone's got busy lives um and invest when you've done that big edit i think it's so important to invest you need to buy now wear forever um so rather than spend i don't know spend 40 pounds on a jumper which you might only wear for a few months spend 100 pounds on something that you'll have in your wardrobe for four years yeah and go for something quite neutral that you can wear under a suit with the trainer or with the jean or over a lovely floaty boho dress you know you really you can really make pieces go a long long way um and also i think i think in this current climate i think it's going to be less of a it bag i think it's going to be kind of more practical functional fashion so for instance i wore a a bum bag kind of diagonally across my body the other day because I wanted to be hands-free and off I went. I want to move quite quickly. Um, and I also, I think the other third point is to enjoy it, be brave, be confident. Um, and the one thing I think, the one rule I do follow is never panic buy. Buy something when you see it, when it looks nice, that there'll always be an occasion to come up to wear it. But I think when you panic buy, you make hmm. huge mistakes. So edit... Invest, invest and enjoy. And enjoy. Okay, they're good. And just in terms of lockdown, I mean, we've all kind of been dressing for Zoom and all of that. And do you think the way fashion works will change in the long run because of how we've lived in the last six months? I think it. I think it will. I think um, relaxed dressing will become a lot more acceptable. Um, as I mentioned, you know, a suit with a trainer. You know, I think I think that's a great look. Um, I think that fashion is going to be more practical and more functional. I think it'll be less about a season. I think we'll become more creative and use what we've got. Um, and I'll tell you what I've been wearing lots of. Every time I have to wear a mask, I wear a statement earring to kind of distract from the mask, draw the attention yes. away. And you don't wear your bright red lipstick anymore under a mask, do you? Because you look like one McDonald's when you take it An absolute disaster. So it's more of a statement earring for me when I go out in my mask. What about just finally? Um, I mean, the last thing any of us are thinking about right now, especially with what's going on in terms of the the power of six or whatever the, the policy's called, is we're not going to be going to big parties this winter, are we? And we're not going to be going to big black tie do's and dinners. And can you imagine a time when that comes back, you know, that we're, we're going to 
big events again. Do you think that will change how we dress for those kind of red carpet do's? I think it might be more of a flat than a heel, but I think that black tried dress will come out. I think we might have to be a little bit patient, but I think we'll probably all be craving some glamour. Yeah, when we can dress up and dance on the tables. Happy days. (laughs) Thank you so much, Charlotte. Thank Um, you. As always, wonderful advice and um, we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye. It will be interesting going back to big, you know, I can't see any big dinners happening this year or big award ceremonies and maybe even the Oscars next year. But it will be interesting, won't it, when that happens again, if people have changed or if we actually are sitting here going, well, I'm wearing a mini skirt, sequin mini skirt because I haven't been out for so long. But it feels like another lifetime, doesn't it, that we used to get dressed up like that? Well, it also feels like kind of over the last couple of years, sort of like there's just been so many powerful women who've started to really rebel against those sort of strictures. Like I remember um, Emma Thompson when she did Can, just taking off her shoes and throwing them into the audience because they hurt her. And at the BAFTAs for the last couple of years, Daisy May Cooper from this country has turned up in a variety of awesome things. Like she turned up in a dress made of bin bags one year. Uh, She turned up in I think a huge Swindon City football, football top yeah. on another Swindon one town. yes sorry. Sorry, for, sorry for the sporting sorry. correction <laughs> a Swindon area based football thing um, yeah and like and it's just brilliant just turning up and, and also um, Sarah Millican she wore a floral dress and the Daily Mail just ripped just like they were just horrible to her about it the next day and so then she said I'm going to wear it every year now I'm just going to make a point of it and she was encouraging other people to buy the same dress and all wear it and just kind of unionise and yeah. go yeah we can wear what we want yeah I am um, I am only ever had once um, I turned up for the you know the glamour awards um, which are a really fun kind of big um, glamorous evening and I was presenting an award and as I got out of my cab two people down the red line was my dress um, <gasps> and um, I, I thought what can you do you know it's like and it was a really it was white and it was kind of holy and quite distinct it wasn't like a black dress yeah, that yeah. like melded into kind of the crowd so um, I went over to the lady and said hello to her because I thought I'll break the ice and then I mentioned it when I got up because I just thought like you know it's, it's you the end of the room here yes. and we're wearing the same dress but I didn't really care but isn't that crazy though that it has turned like almost into a sport that's a part of women's sport that women are in competition <laughs> with each other because the papers the next day we'll do that who wore it better that's a horrible thing to do like why are you making a competition you um also um touch on kind of toxic masculinity and your it was your brother who was staying with you i think wasn't it and he he kind of had an interesting conversation with you about and it's something that i've thought about because i've got twins girl boy so i've got a 15 year old boy so while i'm bigging up you know my daughter and telling her she can do anything obviously i want my son to feel the same but equally noticing that especially when about 13 at his school, there was this kind of anti-feminist kind of rhetoric kind of creeping in yes. that, um, because they felt attacked. And you you, you address that a little bit. Well, that's the book. thing. Well, there is an imbalance. Like, kind of, I think we're so used to as women thinking that we, we're always the underdog and we've got to fight back. But it's really noticeable over the last 120 years of history that women's lives have improved immeasurably. There's still so many things that, we, you know, we need to improve and, you know, so many injustices that we face. But, you know, our lives are almost unrecognisable to what they were 120 years ago. We have the vote. We can own property. We can have jobs. The cheque will be paid 
paid into our account, not our husband's. We can't be consigned to a mental asylum on the say-so of our husband. Marital rape is illegal. We can smoke cigarettes. We can wear trousers. We can go in space. All these things that only men could do before, women can now do as well. And that is because we invented feminism. And we want, we want to take these things that are supposedly just for the male gender, and we will have them too. And our lives have expanded immeasurably. But in that same 120-year span, men's lives haven't really changed at all. And they haven't got something like feminism. Feminism is this... And I always keep having to explain this to people. Like, feminism isn't a science. Like, we didn't discover it looking through a microscope at an isotope. And there is no feminist Bible. There is no feminist God. It's a completely crowdsourced thing that just normal people across the world have identified a problem and come up with a solution to it to make this patchwork quilt that we call feminism. And it has allowed us to have this network and support structure where any problem that a woman has, you can go online and immediately find other women talking about it, other women talking about how to solve it, sharing their experiences. Men don't have that kind of network. So now as a young man in the 21st century, if you're a girl having problems at school, you can, you know, there are feminist clubs at school. Like, you know, you can go online and find these things. You can say, I'm a proud feminist. You can find ways to solve your problems. Men, little boys have no such resource. Mm. And so the only person generally giving advice to young men tends to be these men's rights activists now, who their entire argument for making boys feel better mm. is basically to make girls feel worse again and return them to where they were before. And, you know, I write about this in the book because, like, if feminism is to do anything, it's about breaking down ideas of what the genders are supposed to do and go, look, guys, we've taken loads of your man stuff and it's made you feel like you're at a disadvantage now. The things that you say that worry about your life, that you can't talk about your emotions, uh, that you don't get custody of your children in, in, uh, in divorces, that uh, the highest rate of death for men under the age of 50 is suicide. These are all th talking about your emotions, parenting. These are all things that are traditionally seen as female attributes. Mm. So you come and take some of this stuff from us. We mm. open up the big basket of what it is to be a female human mm. being and go, have some of this. This mm. is the solution to your problems. I mean, my brother didn't listen, but like... Kind of <laughs> <laughs> he just went back to playing Mario Kart. But, you know, every five years I'll say it to him and maybe it will get through. <laughs> it, it, I, I had not read or heard a solution until you put that kind of proposition forwards. And I thought, yeah, that's... Because I was struggling to know what to say to my son yes you know, without making him feel that the odds were against him well there aren't any songs about like how great it is to be a boy unless they get really dodgy ones like the boys are back in town by thin lizzie <laughs> which is like kind of it's a bit <laughs> you know but being a girl you can do a playlist of positive affirming girl mm. songs all day long i mean mm. you just do beyonce's entire back catalogue and you're done um <laughs> but there's no great songs about being a boy like mm. we don't have you know so many shows at the moment as you know stuff like fleabag or i may destroy you or i hate susie talking about what it is to be a young woman mm. there are no shows about boys being that emotionally honest about their sexuality about you know how screwed up they feel about how difficult life is and that's the next thing we need what to did do. you think as always when you, when one's read one of your books it feels like you've got things sorted because you spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and problems we've just touched on one there in terms of you know boys and their position in the world do you feel at the moment having gone through what you've gone through the teenagers and sitting here now that feel a bit more sorted i do yes the the, the I mean, touch wood but it feels like the biggest storms of adolescence are over now they're 19 and 17 they're sort of like they're out working now and suddenly me and my husband like have time together without having to schedule it like we'll suddenly just find ourselves on the sofa and we're like should we watch a whole week's worth of come dine with me whilst eating a baked potato i mean we lead a racy life <laughs> Um, yeah, no, and I really like it. And I also do this thing where I'm always talking to my future self. So I've been talking to future Catelyn at the age of 16, going, where are you? What's your life what like? What is she doing? She lives in Wales. She's rewilded a farm. Uh, she's trying to uh, reintroduce some otters or some beavers. Uh, she's <laughs> carrying a whole sheep up the hill on her back that fell down a crevasse and she's rescuing it. Whether it wanted it or not. Yeah, I mean, I'm just carting <laughs> around. I'm like a 
an Uber for sheep. I've got my own forge and I'm making tools. I've got my own kill and I'm making my own crockery. And I am waiting for my, sadly, for my husband to die much earlier than me because that's what men do. <laughs> At which point I'm moving in all my lady <laughs> friends. I'm just, it's, I'm just a realist. I'm just a realist. I don't want to be sad and caught on the hop. And then all my friends whose husbands will also have died earlier than them. We're all going to move together in a lady commune, pull together for a masseuse to massage our achy knees. And I'm going to get about 6,000 spaniels all of which will be called Spaniel Radcliffe because I find that very, very funny. <laughs> Sounds like a lovely utopic existence that oh. you're having at 60. And you're still, you're fit, you're, you, you've talked a lot about kind of how you've, you know, discovered it. You do a bit yoga, of yoga. Yes. You were running at one point as well. Yeah, the knees so. go after a while, but yoga's amazing because I'd always been told to do it, which made me not want to do it. And people would say it in a smug way and I'd be like, I will not do yoga. Claudia Winkleman described it on this podcast, yoga smells of smug and humus. Literally um. this, literally this. So I resisted for years and then I got tricked into it and I realised it's just mucking about. It's just, you're you're moving like you did when you were a child again. Like, we, you know, we move around in all these yoga positions. You see children do them naturally. And then at a certain point we get told to sit still, sit straight. And then we have a really frustrating phone call where we clench our buttocks and shallow breathe. And then we never relax our bums and start breathing normally again. And when you finally start doing yoga, you're like, oh, I just sigh a lot and relax my bum and go upside down. This is awesome. So there'll be a lot of yoga on this farm. So much yoga. And the hags... Mm. you're bringing the hags in all my hags um, are you seeing patterns of kind of behaviour in your friends that you know you're one really noticeable thing is that at this stage because life is like an experiment that you realise that a woman can only flourish as much as the hus- as the man or woman that she marries so like all the women that I know that are doing well in their careers and are happy and are flying high uh, are married to men who do at least 50% of the housework and childcare and all the ones that aren't they're not married to someone like that. Mm. And often women marry their glass ceilings. Like you only have a certain amount, even if even if your partner's doing 47% of the work, mm. that's still an extra 3% that you're carrying on the sledge of your day-to-day um, burdens. And um, and yeah, that's the biggest advice that I, you know, I don't want to be one of those, you know, old crones that's always grabbing young women and going, there are 53 vital things I must tell you as a young mm. woman. But that's, but, but that's the only whoever one. Whoever you choose your life partner to be, of, um, you know, wherever, at what age, that has to be. Yes. Otherwise you won't flourish and, and you, you need to have that conversation you need yeah. to go if we're going to have kids how would that work you can't make up those kind of decisions on the hop because usually women are the lower paid ones and they go either part-time or they drop out completely mm. and then suddenly that's it you're financially dependent on someone one in three marriages sadly end in divorce mm. and you're looking at a position where in 10 years time you've got a huge gap in your cv and you're sitting in a divorce office kind of like having to itemize what you're spending in a week and kind of begging someone for money mm. and you've got to have those conversations at the beginning it might seem really unsexy but you can make it fun just go let's talk about where we're going to be in 10 years time let's literally talk through the day how are we going to do these things that we both want to do you know there's this kind of fear that we have wisdom I want to pass it back I want to pass it on I want to pass it on to the next generation that's number one and number two is women have their to-do list and it is huge and we see things that men don't see we you know we're the ones that will notice that you know there's a birthday coming up or the dog needs to be fleed or that handle has fallen off that door and it will need to be mended that won't happen by magic and what we are prone to do as women is we are prone to be like no I will cope with it and then tip over into martyrdom Mm. and when I really realize that you have to physically manifest the to-do list in your head you need to buy the biggest whiteboard in the world and you need to write down everything that's in mummy's head right now and you write it out and it becomes the family's to-do list because otherwise you will go crazy and I wrote a column a while ago about like the the the, the ten commandments in the bible and I was looking at them and thinking 
these are commandments that are aimed at men and men's faults. It's like, like it's do not murder twice. Mm. Women don't kill people. <laughs> you know, do not be prideful. Women are constantly slagging themselves off. <laughs> women do not have a pride issue. So it's going, these are things that are aimed at men. What what would be the women's ten commandments? And number one is don't go martyr. We do tend to martyr ourselves and be like, well, I've done everything and we can take a bit of pride from it, but we enjoy the suffering. Do not be a martyr. Number one commandment. To do this is everybody's job. It's not just yours. I knew that I would uh, sit here and just listen to wisdom and uh, and be enlightened and have uh, such a lovely time with you in your igloo, which it has been. And this is definitely one podcast that even though I've kind of jokingly said this is for people who are kind of in the midlife, I feel like young people want to know stuff, actually. And I've had a few people with other episodes saying, I'm not really your age group, but I've really enjoyed it. And it's like, no, no, actually, I was being facetious about that because that's what you want. To, I wish I'd known lots of things at 22 that I know now. Well, I think it's also good, you know, I mean, you know, I talk about the problems of being a middle-aged woman, but I also talk about the joys and like, it's really important, especially with young women, we need to sell the idea of being a grown-up woman. We need to not make women think that their best years are their youngest years and that it's a gradual decaying and things are going to get worse and worse. I want to sell to everyone the idea of getting older and older because A, the alternative is terrible and B, <laughs> it's so joyous. You get wiser and cleverer, you're tighter with your friends, you have all these dreams and you start making them come true. It is awesome to get older, ladies. What a perfect way to finish. <laughs> Thank you so much. My Thank you. Absolute pleasure. It was wonderful. What a joy to sit down with Catelyn and compare midlife notes in her igloo. She is a force of nature, but I know she spends hours thinking about these big life topics. And then somehow she manages to project her philosophies in such an accessible way. And knowing her determination, I'm fairly confident our next meetup might well be in an igloo on a farm in Wales and it won't be in high heels. So thank you to Catelyn, to Charlotte Green for her edit, invest and enjoy advice, to producer Emma Corsham and to Solgar, whose range of vitamin D I am definitely going to tap into after that chat. This sunshine's not going to last forever, is it? And thank you to you for listening. Have a great week. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.